you've got to look for an object or story that reveals a bigger idea. I, I, I talk a lot about how I look for small doorways into big worlds. Are the particular people who can tell particular stories, you know, which stories are whose to tell? You know, there'd be these objects on display that have really violent histories and no one would mention that. An audience won't feel satisfied if they get to the end of it and none of it meant anything. And the job of making it mean something is yours. Hello, my name is Mark Fennell and I'm going to give you a masterclass in how to tell complicated stories in a way that people can follow. Hello and welcome to season two of the Masterclass podcast. I'm Louisa Lim and I teach audio journalism and podcasting at the University of Melbourne. We're dedicating this second season to podcasting. Every episode, we're going to have a master of podcasting talking about one aspect of the craft. This week, we're talking about how to make a complicated story simple. And we're talking with journalist Mark Fennell, who in his series, Stuff the British Stole, shrunk the history of British colonisation down to five objects. It's a podcast that went to number one on the Apple podcast charts the day it was released. And it's a really simple concept. So here we've got the trailer for the show. And it's basically telling the story of British colonisation through five objects, tattooed heads from New Zealand, the Benin bronzes from Africa, Pekingese dogs from China, the Gwegel shield from Australia and Tipu's tiger a musical statue of a tiger killing a British soldier, which is from India. Dear visitors, starting in two minutes' time, there will be a free... All right. All right. <clears throat> I am recording this on my phone in a museum. Oh, God, security looking at me. My name is Mark Fennell, and I'm from Australia. Also, I'm from India and Singapore and Ireland. Actually, I'm from a lot of places. Places where Britain kind of stole stuff. It's shameless. It's so blatant. And for the last year, I've been on a very strange mission. What happened here 250 years ago? So I realised this is a quagmire. That is an insult. Well, just get over it. People just burst out laughing. Whoa, you know, like, yeah, that was a, that was a good time. time. You see, sitting in museums and galleries like this across the UK, are certain objects, objects that were taken in the days of the British Empire. I've been tracking down exactly how it is they ended up here. And let me tell you... He was in desperate trouble. It is wild. Dramatic and very bloody. You look them in the eyes and it's tears. You are weak. There's no way to stop it. The tiger's roaring, the man screaming. We had police escorts, we had cars in front of us. Thousands of people are murdered. It is really bizarre. The savagery. We were left here to die. They are conquerors and victims. And those stories are going to take you on a smuggling operation to Nigeria. They were stolen, they were looted. You don't think that's enough? You go ahead and you pillage. There was hand-to-hand fighting in the streets. Into a war in India. I mean, if somebody literally dug your father's grave up, once a king is vanquished and his entire family has to suffer. To China? This is your fate. Things to do when you're an emperor and you're bored and you've already conquered Tibet a couple of times. Because there is a mystery, they actually belong to all of us. You'll get tattoos in New Zealand. You feel different, there's no doubt about it. And all the way back to Australia. 
just surrounded in flames. He would often fire a gun and deal with the consequences. You know, I was just being shot. So I started by asking him how he got the idea for the show. Well, I was very lucky in a sense because um, the idea actually started with it actually started as a conversation between me and my old TV co-host Jan Fran, and we'd always joked about how much stuff was stolen in British museums, and and I I was like, that's a good idea for a podcast. We should do that. And as it happens, I happen to be on my way to London for an award ceremony that I knew I was going to lose. I was like, okay, I've got to make this trip worthwhile. Like, if I'm going to go, I should just, I should do something. So I packed my microphone with me and I arranged to meet up with a historian who I knew was a bit of a sort of a rebel historian. She had um, done lots of work about repatriation and, and kind of telling the dark side of history. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to buy her a coffee. We're going to go have a chat. And so we went to this beautiful place called the Welcome Collection. I brought my microphone with me and I, and I interviewed her. And she's like, you know what? these are the objects that I think tell the best story. And so she picked them. And I say that at the end of the episode one, it's like she picked, she told me about the five objects. Uh, What I look for is um, when you're talking to people, whether you've got a microphone on them or not, just be alive to the possibilities. Just in the back of your head, always keep an ear out for where is the story. We talked about a bunch of different objects and the way I ended up picking those five ones in particular is because they told very different stories, right? So it's a it's a it's an episodic series. It's not a narrative series where everything kind of interlocks, and so that means that every episode of the show has to tell you something different. Obviously, there was geographical differences. So as you mentioned before, we've got things from Nigeria, from Australia, from China, from India, right? So there's differences there. But most importantly was that there was thematic differences. And so what I'm looking for, whether it's with um, something like stuff the British stole or even even my other work with either SBS or, or Audible, you've got to look for an object or story that reveals a bigger idea. I, I, I talk a lot about how I look for small doorways into big worlds. For me, um, stolen objects in the history of the British Empire is, is a doorway into telling you the story of colonialism without doing the story of colonialism. You know, nobody's going to download a lecture, but everybody loves a treasure hunt was how I sort of started thinking about it. So if I could take the object as, as an intriguing hook into that world, I could actually take you on the journey through a small slither of colonial history. And that's, so that's kind of why I picked those objects, because they actually allowed me to tell bigger stories. And, and sometimes you find stories that only are, the mac, it's only the macro story. You, you tell exactly what happens and then it's done. But I, I like finding things that, they kind of allow you to peek into a bigger world if you, if you start scratching the surface. You mentioned museum guide Alice Proctor. I mean, just for a taste of the podcast, I thought we could listen to this short section where you really set the whole thing up with your conversation with Alice. Alice gives guided tours, just not the ones that museums and galleries like. Basically, when I started doing the tours, they were like proper undercover secret tours, which means that most... Undercover historian, I love it. Most of the museums didn't find out about me until I started getting, like, press attention. So for a lot of them, by the time they knew what I was doing, it was sort of too late to stop me. Mm. Uh, did they not wonder, why is this this girl with the funny Australian accent wandering around with a group of people around her? Like, did they know, no one... Did they just think you had a, a magnetic personality? <laughs> they thought I was just a regular tour guide, right, you know? Right. And so I knew that you could do this because I've been a regular tour guide and people would look at me and they would think, oh, yes, she's a nice white girl with an art history background. She's probably an official educator. It'll be fine. And no one would actually stop and listen to what I was talking about. 
But when people did stop to listen at places like, say, the British Museum or the Victoria and Albert Museum or the v for short, some of the oldest collections on Earth, what did they hear? Specifically about the stuff that people don't want to talk about, which is colonial history, the kind of darkest parts of empire and imperialism. You know, there'd be these objects on display that have really violent histories and no-one would mention that, and also objects that have quote-unquote contested histories or... (laughs) Yeah, there's a euphemism. (laughs) Right, exactly. And so a lot of museums use this term of contested histories as this way of kind of glossing over what's actually being contested, which is that nine times out of ten they were stolen in very violent circumstances or taken as part of um, looting after conflict, that sort of thing. So each episode you had between four and seven interviews, which is not a lot of interviews to tell a really complicated story. I mean, how did you narrow down and decide who to interview? Good question. I think four to seven characters is about as many voices as you can withstand in a half an hour worth of content, realistically. Um, in, in audio, I think in television you can get away with more. Um, because you've got a visual to help remind you who is different and you've got sort of supers and things like that. I'd say four to seven is a digestible amount of personalities to consume in half an hour. So you, that, that's, a, that's a good way of thinking about it. There's no such thing as a talking head in Stuff the British Style. Everybody has to be a character. And by that I mean that you've got to have some semblance of who they are, what they want, what motivates them. So, you, so it's not straight up and down journalism in that sense. And the reason I'm saying that is it, it puts different pressures on the talent, right? So the talent have to have to have a motivation. They have to care about it. And you need at least, you know, 15 to 45 seconds to sort of convey that, ideally through actuality, if not through actuality, some through the interview, worst case scenario through Mark explaining why it matters to them. So, th- so these are the things that you need because otherwise they're just a voice. All right, and I often say that audio is the most visual of the mediums. And by that I mean you have to leverage the listener's imagination in order to make something real, and that just takes a little bit of time. So the, how do I pick those voices? Are Those voices are, have to, everybody has to tell you something new. So the way it works is that um, you pick your voices, you know, you, you do lots of pre-interviews, you talk to lots of people, but ultimately the way you end up structuring these conversations is like this. I go to this person who tells me this information that I need to know, but then what they tell me gives me a question and suddenly I have an information deficit. And that information deficit is what drives me to the next person. So they tell me, they answer whatever information deficit that I ended up with at the end and then they, these people tell me something new and then suddenly you've, you've, you've kind of locked together your talent. And I think once you've introduced at least three talent, you can start to cut between other people because they're clear in everyone's mind. Be mindful of having too many voices that sound the same, right? And so, you know, one of the first, I wrote like a, an eight-page Bible for the series and one of the first things I, I said is there are no experts in Stuff the British Style. It's filled with academics and historians and archaeologists, but they're not experts, they're people. And those people need to be set up as characters and, and have motivations. So I guess what I'm saying is they, they, have, to, they have to work within the structure of the series. They have to um, give you something new that propels you forward. Now, that's how it sounds as a listener. The reality of making one of these things is that most of the talent can give you two or three points, right? So we're knee-deep, I'm knee-deep in making series two at the moment, and most of the people you talk to can tell you the whole story from top to toe in one go, but that's boring, 
Like you don't, like that's boring. So what you want is that you, you pick, you get the people to talk across everything and then you pick who says this part of the story best. Great, we'll go to her. Who says this part of the story best? Great, we'll go to him. And then we hit this point and go, oh, two people tell the story. Okay, well, we've established them now so we can cut between them and they can bolster each other. Or this person needs to tell me this part of the story, but they're not very good, but I can bolster them with this person so they can introduce an idea and this voice can come in and back them up. So you're doing lots of things like that that are helpful to kind of bolster the idea and keep progression going it's got to keep moving it's got to keep like it's it's flowing out so those are the decisions you make and then of course there's you know things i take very seriously which is diversity of opinion diversity of experience men women um ethnic backgrounds particularly if we're talking about issues of culture who feels like they have most right to tell this story and can they own it and do they need to be backed up by other people that are going to lend credence to, to their views or or critique them as well I particularly wanted to ask you about that because it was something that I noticed. I'm also, like you, I'm mixed race and you almost never hear from mixed race people and yet somehow you manage to have loads of mixed race people. And I had a particular question about whether you felt this, these were stories that could be for some reason more easily told by mixed race people or are the particular people who can tell particular stories, you know, which stories are whose to tell? How did you go about kind of answering that question? There's a little bit of not about us without us, right? So you're dealing with stories of, you know, chapters in history that were usually written by the victors. So part of the goal is to go, well, hold on, let's go back and ask all the other people there. And it's not about rewriting history. I think it's a really important one. I'm not interested in rewriting history. I am, however, interested in going back and going, all right, well, that's the official thing that was written down. Who are the voices that were missing from that version? That's all it's about. I'm really not interested in the ideology of it, if I'm being honest with you. Like, I'm really not. That's somebody else's job. My job is telling the truth of what we can prove and, and then also what we can prove is plausible. Like, I'm interested, I have a real fidelity to those facts. But I do think part of the fidelity of truth is going, well, what are the voices that are missing from this story? That, those, to me, those two ideas are not, in, are not intention. Part of good journalism is asking for who's missing. So in that sense... I don't think it's that hard to find, like what can be hard is to find people that can give you a broad overarching vision of history that are from those direct communities that you're talking about. That actually can be quite hard, but that's why you get a mixture of voices. You've got seven voices to choose from, right? And some of those people can can be directly from the community and they can give you their point of view and then there can be other voices that give you other points of view and those things can kind of work in concert with each other. So, like, obviously anybody that knows anything about me knows that I'm interested in having a media that is more diverse, that is representative of the country that we talk to. Like, that, that's, I'm, that's the thing I'm interested in. But it never, ever should come at the cost of the journalism. Like there's a bit of a, like a, an idea that's sort of taken hold that like people from outside certain communities aren't allowed to do journalism within communities and I have a problem with that because a big part of what I like about my job and what I, what I like about good journalism is actually stepping into worlds you don't belong and learning because I think that is a really important thing for us to be able to do is to, is to, to step into worlds we don't belong and learn and ask questions and from those, from those conversations, we grow. 
It is about how you do it, right? It is about treading lightly and asking questions and and asking people from within a culture to explain their their experience of something and then asking other people their experience of something. It's not about me coming in and going, well, I'm mixed race and this is how I see everything. Because I'm not Nigerian and I'm not Chinese and I'm not Maori, but I can go in and ask questions. And I think that's an important thing to understand that, you know, you can do stories about cultures you don't belong to, but it's about how, it's about having an open mind and 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 being willing to learn and be educated. Yeah, it's become a really vexed area recently and I just don't think it, it needs to be that vexed, frankly. Um, and I don't think finding um, a diverse set of voices is that hard once you decide it's the thing that you want to do. At the moment, we're working on Series 2 and you have the same issues all the time. Like there is a no shortage of, of historic experts that kind of look like what you imagine a historic expert looks like. And that's fine. They're often brilliant and we'll use them. It's just we don't only use them. That's all it is. And we don't talk about communities without having voices from within the communities be part of the story. How do you know when to stop doing interviews? Uh, I'm brutal. When I when we find an idea, we do a little bit of a discovery, we talk to lots of different people, we kind of work out who's good, who's who can tell the story, and through the conversation of doing those pre-interviews with people, I start arranging those people in an order. So I will write out like a five-page prose version of an episode you know we start here we hear the sound of this and then this person we meet and they tell us this and then at the end of that we're left with the question of like why did this thing get taken does it get taken and then like I literally write out the whole episode as in prose it's not a very efficient way of working but it's what works for me because I think in in story terms and so from that we go off and do the interview and as soon as I've done the interview I go back to that document and I change it based on what they actually did tell me and whether I did get the turning point I thought I did or I didn't get the turning point I thought I did and so you're very 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 rarely over interviewing people. What can happen is you do interview with somebody and they're shit and they don't give you what you need and then you're like, "Cool, we need to replace that person because they were garbage." <laughs> what we have found often sometimes is because you don't know if people are going to agree to be interviewed or they don't want to be interviewed, I put two people in. So like this person will tell us this if they don't tell us that we'll go to this person and there's been a few times where we've ended up with two people that can tell us a point and I just have to make a decision about who we're going to keep because you're not going to use both because it's too confusing so what you often end up doing is you end up splitting points it's like well we wanted that person to say that there and that there we'll get this one to do this one the other one to do the other one right so you know what I mean so you kind of but you know one person per idea I think is a really important kind of way of keeping it digestible um, and once your idea is set up by one person, other voices can feed into it. I'm, I'm not interested in making more work for myself, right? I, I know the story I want to tell and we're modelling it as we go. And that's a Google document that the executives and Zoe, the producer, and everybody can look at. They can log on to Google Docs anytime and see the exact status of the story. It's a living document that grows and changes, but everyone has access to. And um, we don't over-interview if we don't have to. You know, you hear these stories of people doing like reams and reams and reams of interviews and then they mine it for the great grab. And I'm just like, that just sounds like you didn't plan what you were doing to me. <laughs> and it does happen. Like we did a thing with a woman um, who was on top of a mountain and we had to record her there and me here. I'm going to lay the audio on top of each other. But there's a lot of faffing about of her getting to the top of the mountain. And it's like that is hours of audio that you're mining through. But it's good. 
because then you can really create the moment. That, that's fine. But if you're doing like two, three long hour long interviews with people, it better be because they were terrible and they didn't give you the exact grab and you kept on going and going and going till you found the bit you wanted. It better not have been a giant fishing expedition because then you've wasted your time twice, mind you, you've wasted your time doing interview and your time editing that interview because that's going to be a nightmare. And worst of all, you've wasted their time. Don't do it. Know what you want. Make sure it's going to work in the story you need it to work. Go get it. If things change, that's fine. You know, go with it, but just, just have a plan. You know, like don't, don't, you're just going to make life hard for yourself and your talent if you don't have a plan. Um, God, I sound like my dad. <laughs> have a plan. <laughs> no, I'm all for interview discipline. I guess finally my last question is, I mean, you've done a lot of podcasts, including It Burns, and you did a podcast on mental health <laughs> called Not Alone for Beyond Blue. How do you decide when a podcast concept is going to work or what does it need Ooh. to make it work? Okay, so Not Alone was very simple because it was a it was an interview show that Beyond Blue wanted to do and they approached me and I love I've always loved interviewing people and it was a very sim- conceptually simple. In terms of the narrative work that I do, so most of the narrative podcasts I do are for Audible in the US. Um, Brit Stoll is kind of a weird outlier in that regard because it's for the ABC. I am looking for stories that have intrigue good characters, so people you want to hang out with for hours and hours on end because that's what podcasts are, in effect. You have to hang out with them for hours and hours on end. I'm also looking for a story that tells me something about the world. So It Burns was a series I did for Audible that won a bunch of awards, but, you know, it's a starting point is it's about the race to breed the world's hottest chilli. And so all these different very, very mentally well people uh, breeding the world's hottest chili, and um, what it actually becomes is a series about pain. Each one of the guys, and they are overwhelmingly sort of middle-aged white dudes, are trying to breed the world's hottest chili. And actually, if you scratch the surface of their lives, you realise they're all dealing with a phenomenal amount of emotional pain. And actually, what they're doing is they're using the physical pain of chilies to deal with their emotional pain. I was like, okay, so this is really a series about pain. Nut Jobs, which is the other series I did for Audible, was about a $10 million heist of nuts in the state of California. In digging through that, you actually find it's a story about just how our food is really made and how many people it hurts along the way. So I worked with an American executive a couple of years ago and he forced me to do this thing that I actually hated in the moment but I use every day now. And he's like, whatever your idea is, I'm not going to do the voice. I promised myself I wouldn't do the voice. Oh, go on, uh, do whatever it. <laughs> no, no, it's bad. If I go to America, I fall into an accent. If I go to any country, I fall into an accent. It's really weird. Um, every idea you have, you need to be able to explain in 10 words or less, right? And it doesn't. that's not forward-facing. That's not a motto. But it has to be a very – he called it a North Star. An example would be um, – to take Brit stole um, in the days of the British, this is more than 10 words, but you'll get the gist of it. Um, objects stolen in the days of the British Empire tell us exactly how colonialism worked, something like that. It's not a set, a North Star is not a sexy line. It's not a, it's not a motto or a tagline. A North Star is every decision you make about every story, every character, every, every choice you can make, does it come back to that North Star? It burns is the race to breed the world's hottest chilli unveils a world of pain. A $10 million heist of nuts reveals just how unsafe your food supply really is. So it has to have that hook, thing, that promise of bigger idea and the thematic idea that you punched out with at the end. 
we don't talk enough about themes and storytelling, right? So, because it seems kind of wanky, but it's incredibly important to know. An audience won't feel satisfied if they get to the end of it and none of it meant anything. And the job of making it mean something is yours, right? You can, you can tell the story of something that happened or you can arrange the voices, but if you don't arrange them in such a fashion that makes people, that when they get to the end of it, if it didn't mean something, it will feel hollow. You know, the difference between like a stenographer and a journalist is that meaning part, right? You can arrange the facts of what happened, but you have to arrange them in a fact that gives them some meaning. For Britstoll, what it really was like, the meaning that I give you is not that colonialism was bad or evil. You know, obviously atrocities happened in, you know, the British Empire and we all kind of know that, but that's not really what the series is about. That's not really what I want to say because other people are out there as activists telling you that story. What I want to say is actually that history is really messy and I want people to feel the mess because usually when they feel the mess, they kind of shut up. As opposed to me, who does not shut up. I will stop talking about. Like they like, you know what I mean? It stops you from having like a, a tweet length opinion and you have to really sit with it. And that's kind of what I want. Um, yeah, I sorry, I carry on a lot. I'll shut up now. Finally, I was just gonna ask you for your two top tips on simplifying stories. Um once you've found your characters you've probably found your story. Like once you've found the person for whom the world opens up when you talk to them, like you suddenly can see the possibilities of where the story's going, that's usually the moment you know you've got a good story. And when you're doing your pre-interviews or like, okay, so you've got two ends of the spectrum, right? So at the beginning, usually you find your story when you find your characters because until you've got characters, all you've just got is facts, right? A random assortment of facts. But if you don't have anybody to explain them to you or live them to you or show them to you or demonstrate them to you, you don't have a story, right? You've just got facts. So characters make stories. Like you need characters before you know your stories. But then when you start to amass characters, just keep your eyes open and your ears open for what their stories are telling you about your theme. Uh, look for commonalities of, of what people are saying. Look for similar experiences or divergent experiences. And that will actually start to reveal what your theme is. And you can lean into that going, oh, that, that's what this story is telling me. If I arrange it in such a way, that's how I can give meaning to this random assortment of characters that were once a random assortment of facts. And that was Mark Fennell. The Masterclass is produced by Andy Hazel and myself and edited by Andy Hazel. The original concept is by Anders Furs. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins and it's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. 